On December 24th of last year, Christmas Eve, I had the chance to visit sacred ground. Not sacred ground for any religious reason, but sacred ground for all residents of Wisconsin and other places who are avid Green Bay Packers fans. I got to visit Lambeau Field, the ultimate sacred ground for Green Bay Packers fans. Um, And I didn't just get to visit it. I got to see a game. I got to see them play their great rival, the Vikings. And I got front row seats. I literally had the privilege to have literally the front row right behind the players. I was almost eye level with them. And I have never been to a Green Bay Packers game before. I'd been to Lambeau Field, but I've never actually been to a live game until this point. And I was privileged to have a front row seat because... My brother has befriended one of the Packers' fathers, and the Packers' father gave us the family tickets, so we were literally sitting with the families right behind the players. And I just remember Aaron Rodgers would throw a touchdown pass, and he would come over smiling right in front of me, and I'd be like, whoa, this is weird. This isn't like TV. I could like reach out and touch him. And like he's not very big. He's just like me. And then Jordy Nelson, he got a touchdown, and he came over and like, fist pumped right in front of me. I was like, wow, this beats the heck out of TV. This is amazing. (laughs) So literally, I had a front row seat. And what I want you guys just to lock in your brain today is that Jesus is our front row seat to the Father. We don't have to guess anymore what God would do or say. Sometimes we might be like, oh, I wonder what God would do. But we actually can see what God would say to different types of individuals. And we, could actually, we can actually see what action God would do on earth through the person of Jesus when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So what I want to look at today is how Jesus is our front row seat to the Father. How we can actually see with our own eyes by reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and hear with our own ears what Jesus would do. And through Jesus, God. Because God claimed, Jesus claimed to be God. Um, But before I do that, I want to give you guys a visual aid, because I know visual aids can be very helpful. It's been said that a picture is worth a thousand words. And the reason I want to give you guys a visual aid is because I just am really burdened that we all view the Christian faith as coming to a person and not simply coming to a set of practices. I didn't really walk very close with God in high school. Just Christianity just seemed like a lot of to-dos to me. Some of them weren't very fun or they weren't really what I wanted to spend my time doing. But I think if we can see Christianity, if we can see our Christian faith is first coming to a person and later on learning the practices that he desires, it will like literally revolutionize our Christian life. It will create a sense of urgency, but it will also create a sense of intimacy and love and joy that we haven't experienced before. So what I want to do... In a minute or two, I want to show you guys Genesis to Revelation, (laughs) the whole 66 books of the Bible, briefly. So this is in the garden. In the garden of Eden, orange will be God, and this is man. I should turn it around. I wrote man on there in a couple places. So this is God, and this is man. And man didn't exist in the beginning. So in the beginning, it was just God. But God decided to create 
Adam and Eve, man and woman, both created in his image and both designed for an intimate relationship with the Father. And it says that they walked and talked with God daily in the garden and they were naked. They didn't feel any shame. They just felt this closeness with God. And our human hearts are created for God and they feel restless until they find their rest in God. So this was like paradise. Paradise is literally being with God in intimacy. There's no death, no fear. Um, We never have the negative emotions that we feel on earth, like feeling excluded or tired or anything else in paradise. So man existed with God in the beginning in a perfect, intimate relationship. But then something awful happened. Sin entered in, and man, by his free choice, chose to disobey God. And then are written in the early chapters of Genesis, I think some of the saddest verses in the Bible. It says, God sent man away from his presence. Some translations say God drove man, meaning man and woman, away from his presence. And so now they were ashamed, and they went and found clothes, and they were in a broken relationship with God. And then just all these awful things happened. They only had two sons, and right away one kills the other. And things got so bad that God said, no, I'm going to start over with the new man. I'm going to start over with Noah. And so he destroyed the whole human race and started over with Noah. And then that went bad again. And things just kept getting bad. And so eventually God said, okay, I'm going to start something new. I'm not going to wipe out the earth again. I'm going to start a new spiritual offspring through the man Abraham. And so he chose Abraham and appeared to him over and over. And he said, in you, all, na- all families of the earth will be blessed. All families of the earth will be blessed. And we're part of that. So then he started appearing to Abraham and eventually um, his descendants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And eventually they built a temple, a tabernacle first. And God dwelled in that tabernacle and in the t- temple, which they later built. And it says that God dwelled above the cherubim in the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies once a year. So man did not have, man did not have an intimate relationship with God anymore. And it says that Moses actually created a tent of meeting outside the camp. And he would go to that tent of meeting periodically and meet with God. But eventually, but he asked what's crazy is in Exodus 33, he said, show me your glory. And God said, no man, no man can see my face and live. So he let him see the backside of him, his glory. And then eventually it's in Ezekiel, are some really sad words. In Ezekiel, it says that Israel, God's people, had sinned over and over again. And eventually, it says God's glory. God's glory. Actually, this is God. God's glory departed from the temple. And so then we have the silent years. 430 years. 430 years um, until the birth of Christ. And then something crazy happens. An angel appears and he says, You shall have a child and you shall name him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So God was going to visit his people again. And it wouldn't be just any old way. It would be as John says it, the word became flesh. Some translations, the message translation says, the word who is Jesus became flesh 
and moved into the neighborhood and moved into the neighborhood in John 1.14. And John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God at any time. And it says, The only begotten Son from the Father, who's in the Father's bosom, He has made Him known. And so now we can actually see God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, in the flesh, He ministered for three years from, his, from when He was 30 to when he was 33, before he was crucified. And anyone who saw Jesus, who walked up and touched him, could actually see God. And if you listen to Jesus' teachings, he was perfect, so you would hear God speaking. And if you watched Jesus' actions, that is the heart of the Father. But then something sad happened. In John 13 through 17, he said, I have to go away. And his disciples are like, no, no, we don't want you to go away. And he says, it's better this way, because if I go away, I'm going to send you a helper to be with you forever. Paul calls the Holy Spirit the down payment. So he says, if I go away, I'll send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to live inside you, and he's going to make me come alive to you. But he says, don't worry. He says, don't worry. I go away to prepare a place for you. And John 14, 3 says, and where I'm going, I will take you to myself. One day that I'll have a second coming and I will take you to myself. So we see Jesus, he lived among the disciples and taught the teachings of God and did the actions of God. Then he ultimately died on the cross, which interestingly, when he died and gave up his spirit, it said the temple, the, the temple curtain to the Holy of Holies, it was torn in two, it was split from top to bottom. So God's saying, now it's not just the high priest, all my people who come to me in faith can enter in with relationship to me. So Jesus died, and he was crucified, and rose again, and he went to be with the Father. Matthew 28 says the disciples saw Jesus depart into the clouds. Then the, the angels there said, why, why do you stand looking in the clouds? The same Jesus is going to come back again in the same way you saw him go. And then on Pentecost, if you remember Pentecost in Acts 1, then the Holy Spirit comes in. He comes in, and he lives inside us. So the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that we're better than anyone else, but that Christians believe in the sacrificial sacrifice of Jesus, and Christians have the Holy Spirit coming into them. I remember when the Holy Spirit started working in my life, all of a sudden God became real, and before I didn't really care about him, and I started being convicted about things that I wasn't formally convicted about. So right now we have the personal presence of Jesus living inside us. In Philippians chapter 1 and Romans 8 and Acts 16, the Holy Spirit is called the, it's called the Spirit of Christ. The Bible calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ. And Jesus said in John 14, he said, Don't fear, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you in the form of the Holy Spirit, and I will live with you. And Romans 5 says that we have the Spirit inside us which calls, cries out, Abba, Abba, Father. So what I want to do, I want to look at John 14, 7 through 11, and really camp out in verse 7. But before I do that, I just want to explain the preceding verses, because I think they can be really helpful, the verses right before this. And as I read and explain these, Think about how everything here is talking about God as a person. 
God's personal presence with us. God wants us to know him as a person. He doesn't just want himself to be a set of practices. So in John 13, I'll start at John 13 because it's helpful. It's helpful to have context. The Bible didn't originally have verses and chapters. We inserted those in there. And it can be helpful to find things, but sometimes it will cause mental disconnects in our train of thought. So John thirteen thirty six. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow me afterward. You will follow me afterward. So he's saying, where I'm going, you can't come now, but you'll follow me afterwards. And then he says in John 14, 1, he said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Dwelling places is the word insula. And he said, and if I go, John 14, 3, and he said, and if I go away, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. It says that where I am, you may be also. So what Jesus is using here, he's using the language of marriage in that culture. I remember falling in love with my wife. I didn't want to live in a separate house. And so as soon as we got married, I began living with her together in the same house. And that's what marriage is. He's saying, like, I'm going away and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come, and I'm going to take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And in the Jewish culture, his disciples would have understood exactly what he is saying. In, the Jesus, in Jesus' Jewish culture at that time, other cultures, a uh, man who was interested in a woman, um, the woman's family had to pay a price, but in Jewish culture, the man had to pay a bridal price. So he first had to pay a price to even have the chance to propose. And this, this will help you read the New Testament because Jesus says, you are, or Paul says, you are not your own, you are bought, bought with a price. But he first had to pay a price to propose. And then once he had paid that, he had the opportunity to propose. So he would go to the woman's house and her family and friends would be around. And the way you proposed in Jewish culture is you filled a cup full of wine and you would give it to the woman. And if she wanted to accept, she could, she could reject it. She had the freedom to reject your marriage proposal. But if she wanted to accept your marriage proposal, she didn't have to say a word. All she had to do is take the cup of wine and drink it and drink it. So you see at the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, this is my cup of the new covenant. Take all of you and drink so they'd be like, this is crazy. This is like, this is like a, a marriage proposal. And so then once she would drink it, if she accepted his wedding proposal, she would go away to her town and he would live in his town and they wouldn't see each other again until a latter point. And the only way they could communicate is through his best man. And his best man would like go and communicate back and forth between them. So the Holy Spirit is like Jesus' best man. And what he would do is he would begin building an add-on to his father's house. <laughs> Pretty romantic, huh? He's going to come bring his bride to live with his dad. But he would begin building an add-on 
to his father's house an extension called an insula to where he would then bring her and she would live once they got married. But only his father could tell him when it was complete. And so the bride did not know the day or the hour. The bride did not know the day or the hour. Think Jesus' parable of the ten, wet, ten ready and the ten unready um, bridesmaids who are waiting for the groom to come, that he says. So she did not know when it would be finished, and even the groomsmen did not know. And one day the father would say, it looks good, the insula looks good, you can go get her. So he would go to her town, and he would blow a shofar, a loud shofar, and then he would go get her. She would come running, be very excited, be surprised, and they would actually get married that day. So that's what Jesus uses. He uses this imagery all throughout the Gospels, especially in Matthew, of like wedding, the wedding feast of the Lamb, and being ready because we don't know the day or the hour. So when he's saying, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me, he's saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Um, You will one day be with me. So heaven is more of a person than a place. Heaven is being with God again. Like the cups I showed you, Adam and Eve with God in the Garden of Eden, that's going to be restored. And if you read Revelation 21 and 22, the last, two ver- the last two chapters of the New Testament, you will see that. You'll see the tree of life. You'll see everything's going to be restored. So the Christian faith, the Christian faith believes that human history is headed toward a final destination. And... We don't know exactly when, but it does say once people have had a chance to hear the gospel from every tribe, tongue, and language. Revelation 7, 9 says that. And the Great Commission says, go preach this gospel to all nations. And then they asked Jesus, the disciples, in Matthew twenty four fourteen. they said, when, when are you going to come back? And he said, it's not for me to know, only the Father knows. But he says, this gospel must be proclaimed to all ethne, to all nations. It's actually different ethno-linguistic groups. To all nations. And then the end will come. So once every tribe, tongue, and nation has had a chance to hear the gospel, Jesus is going to come back and we're going to live with him again. But in the meantime, he's given us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person, not in it. And the Holy Spirit makes Jesus come alive come alive in our hearts. So let's look at John 14, 7 through 11 right now. Okay, so Jesus is saying that he's getting ready to go away, and they still don't don't understand this. Thomas asked him a question. Verse 5, he says, Lord, where are you going? We don't know the way. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. And then he says, right here, he says in verse 7, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. From now on, in Greek that phrase from now on, it means from this moment, from this second in history. So he's saying from this moment, you do know him. That's present tense in Greek. You do know him. You do know the Father. Just look at me, and you have seen him. Have seen him is perfect tense, meaning you have seen him the last three years. It's completed. The last three years of my life, you have seen the Father 
through me. And Philip still doesn't get this. He says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for him. And it is enough for us. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. He didn't understand yet what Jesus was saying. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Jesus is saying there's a new state of affairs. Something new has happened in human history. You don't have to know God at a distance anymore. Something has changed. From now on, all you have to do is look at me, and you will see the Father. On August 27th, 2011, I entered into a new time in history, in my personal history. I married my wife. <laughs> and from then on, like a legal change took place. We signed, we signed our um, marriage license. But then when I would file taxes or even go to the doctor, I couldn't write single anymore. I had to write I had to write married. So there was a legal change. But sometime I failed to take that into consideration mentally. There was a legal change. And my wife would say, Grant, you still think like you're single. (laughs) I'd be like, oh yeah. If somebody asked me, can I go like run or go do this, go watch a football game? I'd say, oh yeah, I'm married now. I'm married now. I got to ask my wife because not only have things changed legally, but my thinking needs to change to line up with reality. So Jesus is saying here now, your thinking needs to change. All you have to do is look at me and you will see the Father. So our, we don't have to view God the Father as distant. We can now view him as intimate and close. Oh, verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? So Philip's question in verse 8 showed that he didn't take the new reality. He didn't really get the new reality. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Okay, we'll go to the next slide. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. The Father in me who does his his works. So he's saying, verse 10, the words that I say to you, so think words, the things that Jesus said during his three years on earth. We have these words recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a lot of them. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So he's saying, believe because the words I say, they're clearly from God. Like, I couldn't make up some of the stuff that Jesus said. Like, people were following him and he said, you have to, like, hate your mother and father and your wife and brothers and sisters in comparison with me, and you have to, like, hate your life. You have to give up your life and come follow me. You have to take up your cross. Like that's not someone, something, something makes up. Someone makes up because they want a lot of people to follow him. So, and then just some of his wisdom and the different things he did in the gospels, it was, it's just amazing. It's clearly, clearly from the Father. So he's saying, believe me from my words that the Father is in me. But if you don't believe from my words, believe from my works. Verse 11, the very last phrase. 
or else, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So Jesus raised three people from the dead. He probably raised more, but he raised a um, 12-year-old girl. He raised a widow's son, and he raised Lazarus, and they had seen that. And his, the inner three, um, John and Peter and James, saw the transfiguration, and they saw him heal people. They saw him walk on water. They saw him do all these amazing works. So he's saying, if you don't believe just because of how awesome my words are, at least believe on account of the works themselves. And so the way, the way that we can now see the Father through Jesus, the way we can see the Father through Jesus, is by reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and listening closely to Jesus' words. We've got to say, okay, this is, this is God speaking. We listen closely to Jesus' words, and then we watch we watch with our eyes. So if you want to see Jesus now, because he's not alive on earth, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Isn't that strange that there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Like, I like the book of Ruth. I like David's life. I like um, Joseph's life. But the Bible only has one account of their life. One account of their life. Why would the authors of the Bible and the people who put it together see fit to put in four accounts of Jesus' actions and teachings, four spiritual biographies. I think it's because the people who compiled the Bible, they knew that we need to see Jesus. Jesus is such an amazing person, and he shows us the Father. He's our front row seat to the Father, that they want to give us like a 360 view of Jesus. And different ones pick up different themes. They all have their different things they focus on. And so they want us to be very intimate with Jesus and know Jesus' personal, physical life on earth very well. And so there's four books about Jesus' teaching and his actions so that we can come to know Jesus intimately very intimately. So the way that we come to know the Father through Jesus is we read the Gospels consistently and slowly, and we ask the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and help us see Jesus in the Gospels. And if the Gospels just seem like a bunch of religious teachings, slow down, put yourself in the sandals of the disciples, and just pretend you were there. Like imagine that you were one of Jesus' four disciples who was a fisherman. And one day, you're sitting in your cubicle, putting it in nowadays term. Imagine you're sitting in your cubicle, and this guy comes by and says, come follow me, come follow me. Like, put yourself, put yourself in the position of the people. Jesus interacted with poor people, rich people, all different types of people going through all different experiences in life. And I think the reason that wide range is recorded is so that we can see Jesus from different angles and not just see him, but see how he interacted with different types of people. And if we pay close attention, we will start seeing ourselves in those positions. Sometimes I'll be like, oh, the disciples, they're such knuckleheads. How come they're like doubting Jesus right after he did this? Like Mark 8 actually records that he fed 5,000 and then people, and then a short time later they were worrying about bread and just having a dumb argument. He's like, 
And then he fed 4,000 people right after that. And he's like, don't you get it? He's like, haven't you learned anything? And I used to be like, oh, crazy disciples, don't they get it? But now I'm like, yeah, God's provided for me in awesome ways. And yet, I fall into fear again about financial things or different things. I mean, I used to be like, okay, Peter, like, that was dumb. You get out of the boat and you're walking on water towards Jesus. And then all of a sudden you get worried and you look. It says he looked and saw the waves and the wind and that he, he grew afraid and he began to sink. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't rebuke him for getting out of the boat. He pulls him out, mercifully pulls him out of the water. And he said, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? But the more I've come to read and understand the Gospels, I was like, no, that's us. That's us. We walk through the storms of life. Sometimes we'll have our morning devotion or do whatever, have a time in prayer and we'll be focused on God. And then our kids do something or our spouse or something happens at work and we immediately get either angry or we start becoming fearful and we take our eyes off Jesus and we start looking. We start looking at the storms. And so when we read the four Gospels, we want to read them to see and hear the Father through Jesus. But we also want to put ourselves, we want to put ourselves in the feet of the disciples. And we want to put our feet, ourselves in the feet of the different people who interact with the disciples. Um, so I just want to give you guys some different examples um, of what Jesus would do. Actually, let's look at Deuteronomy 18, 14 through 19 real quick. So we, we'll learn, we can learn a lot from Jesus' actions in the gospel, and I'll give you guys some examples. What I want to do is just give you guys kind of some principles for reading the gospels, because I could preach for three hours on all the different cool places in the gospels that we learn neat things about the Father through Jesus. But what I kind of want to do is just give you guys an idea of how to read the gospels yourself. But one thing we need to know when we read the gospel is we live in a culture where there's different teachings like Dr. Phil and different things, and we could take or leave them. But when we read Jesus' teachings in the Gospels, you cannot take or leave Jesus' teachings. He, he's the Son of God, and He's speaking the words of God, and they're authoritative. So if He says, either do this and have this good thing happen, or do this and have the bad thing happen, or He says, follow me, there's no third choice. You have to obey Jesus because it's actually God speaking to you and to me. So when you read the Gospels, view it as God speaking to you. And a lot of times I'll read, I'll read something in the Gospels like, here, let me, let me give you guys an example real quick. And I'll feel, I'll feel the Holy Spirit like convicting me. But then I can come up with excuses not to take Jesus literally. So John 14, 12 through, 12 through 14. John fourteen twelve through 14. Jesus also said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So he's saying when you have a feast, 
invite poor people, people from different um, social classes as you, like people with disabilities, people you wouldn't normally invite. And so I've been convicted recently that there's this guy I need to just invite over for a family thing. And I'll immediately excuses start coming to my mind. I'll be like, no, I'm busy. I'm like, I'm pursuing this ministry thing right now. I have a wife and kids, maybe in another season. But God convicted me this week, like, listen to your sensitive side. There's your side that wants to push away Jesus' teachings, and then there's your sensitive side. I had some dental work done this week, and they numbed a whole side of my mouth. And so they're like, be careful when you go to eat something or you'll bite your tongue and it will hurt. So I got home. It was early in the morning still when I had my, it was like 11 when I got back from my appointment. And so I drank some hot coffee, and I immediately felt it burning my left side, but it didn't hurt my right side. <laughs> because it was numb. And so I was like, oh, I really want this coffee, this hot coffee. I want to have it now. So what I could do is drink it like that on my right side and be fine. But I'll be like, I know I'm going to pay for it later, because I'm probably burning my taste buds off. And when my tongue numbs out in a few hours, I'm going to be like, that was stupid. And so really, that's, that's what it's like when we read Jesus' teachings. He's saying, this is reality. This is the way things are going to be. You have a choice to just do what's comfortable or easy now and enjoy your life the way you want now. Or you can listen to me and experience the resulting joy that you'll start feeling and also the eternal um, rewards that you will get. So uh, when you read the Gospels, listen to your sensitive side, not your numb side. And so I'm going to give you guys some examples from the Gospels. But before... Before we do that, let's look at Deuteronomy 18. And this is the Old Testament telling us that there was this man who was going to come called the prophet. And when he came, that you need to listen to every single word he says because the Father is actually speaking through him. And then at the end of this, we'll see, God says, and if you don't listen to him, I will hold you accountable. He's not just another man. He's my my prophet. And a prophet in the Old Testament is just a mouth mouth person, a mouthpiece for God. God would tell the prophet, and they would go tell the people. So, verse 14. So God's saying, though these nations, the people who aren't God followers, though these nations you are about to drive out, listen to fortune tellers and diviners, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do it. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking now. Like me from among your own brothers, so he would be an Israelite. You must listen to him. See that? It's on the coffee cup. You must listen to him. This is what you requested from the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not continue to hear the voice of the Lord our God or see this great fire any longer so that we will not die. Then the Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words, so verse 18 says, I will raise up for them. God would raise them up. And then he says, I will put my words, so God's words, in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. So God would command Jesus what to say. Verse 19, I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. So when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John this week, pay attention to the urgency Jesus speaks. 
with. He's, the way he speaks, he's like, you must do this. It's only choice A or choice B. You either listen to me or you don't. There will be eternal rewards and even present rewards if we listen to the words of God through Jesus and the gospel, but there will be eternal consequences if we don't. So just want to give you guys, this is just some examples for you guys. I would encourage you guys this week to start reading in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Just start reading in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I like to take one thought unit. So take one teaching, one parable, uh, one story of him interacting with a particular individual. Take one thought unit about Jesus and just read it. And in the notes, I put inductive Bible study questions at the bottom that you can take home. Um, When you read it, say, ask two questions of your Bible reading in the Gospels. Say, what does this tell me about God or Jesus? What, What do I learn about God or Jesus from reading this story or this teaching about Jesus? What what is God what is it saying about the character or person of God? And then the second question is, what is God requiring of me through this teaching or this story? What what change in my attitude or thinking or daily life is God requiring of me? So one question is, what does it tell me about God? So in John eleven. Jesus raises Lazarus. It's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus. So there's really not a lot that it tells us to do except believe. You'll notice this over and over and over. Jesus doesn't call us to do a lot in some situations. He simply says, believe. So in John 11, about the only thing I can think of is he says, believe. But we do learn. So that's the action. That's the second question. The answer to the second question is God calls us to believe in him that he's the resurrection and the life, and that he can, he is, has power over death. But what we learn about, we learn a lot of cool things about Jesus in John 11. So if you're reading John 11 and you're trying to answer the first question, what does this tell me about God or Jesus? You'll come to John 11:35, and he's already arrived at the scene of the funeral, and Lazarus' two sisters are crying. And it says he felt compassion for them. And then the fa- a lot of people's favorite verse to memorize in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, it says Jesus wept. Jesus wept. So when you read when you read that, you can answer that question. What does this tell me about God? You can say God does care about human suffering and need. God does care, and the r- reason I know He cares is because it says here that Jesus wept. Jesus wept, so Jesus is God, so God does care. We can tell from reading this story that God does care about our human need. In John 11, 28, or I'm sorry, Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, come to me, all you who are weary and heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. So I'm like, wow, Jesus actually cares about our weariness during our everyday life. So he tells the action he tells us to do is pretty simple. He says, come to me. Come to me. That's the action. And he says, I will give you rest. So what we learn about God is that God himself promises to give us rest, even if it's only the emotional strength to get through what we need that day. So if you start applying these two questions to the Gospels, you'll be amazed at what you'll learn about God's heart through these different stories 
and what you'll learn about God's will for your life. God's heart just comes out in Jesus. It's the most beautiful and most clear, I think, portrayal of God's heart in the whole Bible is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's literally, we don't have to guess what God would do. We can see exactly what God would do in all different situations with all different people. Um, we see how God would, we see how God views our time and our priorities. In the story of Mary and Martha, Mary um, is sitting at Jesus' feet. They're two sisters. Jesus is at their house for a meal. And Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. And Martha, it says, is busily, frantically trying to get the food ready. And she sees her sister there, and she gets mad. She's like, Jesus, don't you care that I'm sitting here doing this all alone? Tell my sister to help me. And he says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things. But only one thing is necessary. And he says, your, your sister has chosen the better part, the better thing. So we learn that. In spite of our lives being busy, God wants us to take time to sit at Jesus' feet. God wants us to sit, take time and sit at Jesus' feet. And we're all going to go through some type of storms this week of different varying degrees. But we can learn from Peter walking on water that he actually did the impossible. I think that's crazy. Like no person ever in history had ever walked on water. But Peter actually got out of the boat and walked on water. Not because he was this great, awesome person. He was a fisherman. Like, he he flunked. He wasn't a Pharisee. Pharisees were really high educated, but only the cream of the crop got picked to be one. But basically, he flunked out at 12 years old and became a fisherman. So Peter's this average, ordinary person walking on water towards Jesus. So that shows us that in our trials and storms of life this week, we actually can walk on water. We can walk through some hard things, even if we're like, no, my circumstances are too hard, God. We actually can walk on water if we keep our eyes on Jesus. As soon as Peter turned his eyes and looked at his circumstances, which I'm quick to do oftentimes, we will, um, he sank, and that's exactly what can happen to us. Um, we could skip forward to application if you want to just skip forward to application. And um, you can even... So basically, if we want to know God better, we have to look at Jesus. But how, how can we know Jesus better? And you can, you can put up the first one. So we want to read consistently in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And use your imagination... Look at Jesus. Listen to Jesus. You can go to the next one. Um, memorize Colossians one fifteen through twenty two. At least the first four or five verses. It'll like revolutionize like your view of Jesus. It's a really exciting passage. And then pray Ephesians three fourteen through nineteen. So Ephesians three fourteen through nineteen is a prayer of Paul's, and this is what's crazy. Paul is praying for the Christian church at Ephesus, and they're Christians. There's Christians, but what he prays is like crazy. If you think about it, um, you could bring up. You could bring up. Actually, I'll just read you. I'll read you. Ephesians three. So what Paul? What Paul says? Actually, I'll just summarize it. So what Paul says 
just look look up Ephesians three fourteen through 19 this week. And it's a good prayer to memorize and pray. I try to pray it almost every day for myself and my kids. So we'll skip. So he's kneeling. So he's praying. Verse 14, then verse 16. So this is what Paul prays for Christians. These aren't people who don't know Christ. He says, I pray that out of his, that's God, that out of God's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit, because we need the Spirit to see Jesus because He's not here anymore. I pray that He will strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So He's praying for Christians that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. Aren't they already Christians? Don't they already believe in Jesus? Yeah, they do. They do believe in Jesus. Like, they are saved. But there is varying degrees of how much Jesus dwells in your heart. Like the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. The more of the Holy Spirit you get, the more clearly you see Jesus. I remember when um, I just started feeling the Holy Spirit, just praying for more and more of the Holy Spirit. I wasn't praying to know Jesus better. And all of a sudden I started reading like the Gospels one day. I was like, whoa, Jesus left the 99 and went after the one. Whoa, like this is Jesus, like he's alive. Um, and then you... And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people, Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know that love that surpasses knowledge. So he's saying, I want you to know these wide and high dimensions of Christ's love. He's saying Christ has so much love, like you can't imagine how much Christ loves you. He says, I want you to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So what he's saying is just reading a Christian book that explains the love of Christ, that can be helpful. And just reading the Bible, that can be helpful. But you've, I'm sure like me, you've read the Bible and put it down and you're like, yeah, well, I did my Bible reading for today, but I'm still more like focused on what's, what's going on today. I still feel ornery. It hasn't really helped me any. And that's because the Holy Spirit's not making Christ come alive. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. All the fullness of God. Charles Spurgeon says that a Christian's joy at any given point on any given day isn't dependent on their circumstances it's dependent on their faith at that moment it's dependent on their faith at that moment so our joy throughout the week is not dependent on our circumstances like we think it is we can be like oh this day really stinks i wish so and so would treat me better this family member or whatever i wish today's just rough i got a lot to do but we can actually be filled to the fullness of God and we can have the love of Christ burning. We can actually feel Christ's love for us burning in our hearts through the Holy Spirit if we pray Ephesians 3. God, please, through the power of your Spirit, let Christ love. Let me just see Christ. Let Christ dwell in my heart through faith. Make Christ alive. And then we just come to the Gospels and we say, God, show me Jesus. Show me Jesus. I want to see Jesus. So that's my, that's my prayer for you guys this week is that you would read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and that you would see that Jesus doesn't call us to a set of practices. He always calls us to him. In Mark 8, he says, says he said to his disciples in a crowd, he said, if any 
one of you would come after me and follow me. And then he says what you have to do to follow him. And in Matthew 11, which I just shared, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And his disciples, he said, come follow me. So Jesus invites us to follow him. God the Father invites us to follow him, the Father, through Jesus Christ. We don't have to view our religion as like this distant God. We're actually following a person. We're actually following a person. And as my cup analogy showed, this person actually came down and moved into the neighborhood. If we could go back 2,000 years and live in Israel with the disciples or be one of the people Jesus interacted with, we could be right there with Jesus. And so now, in the meantime, while we're waiting to go be with Jesus, he's going to come and get us, just like the wedding analogy he used, John 14. He said, this is going to, be ha- this is going to happen. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't worry. I'm going to, I'm going to go prepare an insula. I'm going to prepare a dwelling place at my daddy's house. And then I'm going to come get you, and you're going to be with me forever. But in the meantime, I'm going to send the comforter, the guide, and he's going to show you me, and he's going to bring to your remembrance everything I've said. So in the meantime, while we're waiting for Jesus to come get us and bring us to his dad's house, where there won't be any tear or anything else ever again, what we want to do is we want Jesus Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith. Let's pray. Dear Father, I just pray that we would turn our eyes on you. I was just thinking about the hymn this week, God, where it says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So I pray this week that we would just pray earnestly that you would show us Jesus through the power of your Spirit, and that if we don't feel or see Jesus like we want, we wouldn't give up that we would beat down the door of heaven and say, God, show me Jesus. Show me Jesus. I want Jesus to be alive to me. Show me Jesus. And I pray that you would show us Jesus. You love to show yourself through your son. You came down because you wanted us to know you. You want people to come back into that Garden of Eden relationship with you where they walk and talk with you and don't feel any shame and they feel your love and they feel the glow that comes off you, God. So I pray, show us Jesus this week. And it's only because he died for us that we can even pray this, God. Um, just make, make it happen, God. Make it a reality. Thank you that you didn't leave us to walk through life alone, but you sent us the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, and that one day Jesus is going to come get us and get us out of this mess and bring us up to be with you. But I pray that in the meantime that we would be the hands and feet of Jesus here because other people can't see Jesus. Unbelievers can't see Jesus. The only way that they can see Jesus is if we live out that love for them, God.